I suppose we ought to, ooh, that is loud. We'll turn that down just a... Gonna blow out my, my hearing with my own voice. I don't really like to hear myself anyway, which is strange for me to say, is it? For as much talking as you do, really? You don't like to hear yourself talk because you could have fooled us. All right. Uh, announcements, uh, Memorial Day coming up uh, May 30th, uh, it's our fifth Sunday, so we'll have the, the kids speak and we'll, we'll have that. Uh, June 11th and 12th is the next food bank. Uh, we got some great in, uh, news. We had a, a grant that got delivered to us. It was the City Foundation, is that correct? The CARES Foundation through the City of Fruta gave the, the food bank a $4,000 grant to Food Bank of the Rockies for us to purchase food. So that is absolutely huge. Um, great stuff. June 16th, there's a sign-up sheet at the back of the church. Uh, Wendy has put together uh, a ladies' card-making party. So I won't be there, but a bunch of you ladies should be there uh, to make some cards. But it'll be a great time of, of social time. It's uh, 6.30. That's a Wednesday, uh, June 16th. It's in your bulletins also. But again, there is a sign-up sheet um, by the door. There's, there's no cost. And ladies, please please go. It's, we, we do these wonderful gatherings, and uh, it's good stuff. Please plan on going to that. Sunday, June 20th is Father's Day. Uh, that's our, our next uh, holiday coming up. Uh, quick conversation. I, I don't ever mention our children's church. It's something I don't talk about regularly up here. I talk a lot about food bank and other missions. And meanwhile, there's this wonderful group of people that go over there every morning and teach our kids. It's pretty stinking important and pretty amazing what they do. They do so without complaint, and they organize themselves. I have literally no interaction. They take care of their own schedule. They take care of the curriculum, and they have put together some really great stuff. They put a lot of time and effort into the lesson plans and into making sure that the kids have not only good stuff but fun stuff that's biblically sound. It's great. One of the things we need to think about, though, as, um, as the parents and grandparents when we bring our kids, um, we, and, and my kids do it all the time. If they have the, their brother going to another class, they want to go also. And, but it's important that they go to their, their classes. So if they're in the K through 3, they should go to the K through 3. If they're in the, the 4 through 7, they should go there. And, and uh, Because, especially when the, the protege class, um, the protege class can get into some materials that is not appropriate for the, for the younger ones. They're going to have some serious conversations about the young adults should be having. And so especially in that age group, just make sure that we are um, sending them to the to the right class. And I mean, really, also, I say to honor the work that those teachers have put into that. It's, um, it's good stuff that they have, that they put together and they do so weekly. Um, Bible studies, we have uh, Bible studies on, on the Tuesday evening for, for the, um, the men's and women's. Uh, remember the, the Bibles at the back of the church and the library, and please remember the, the tear-off tab for your prayer requests and for, uh, um, for anything else, for your contact information for us. Uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I have to tell you, Father, I am overwhelmed by the material that's in front of me. And we've got your word open. We are going to dive into this passage, and there is so much here. Father, I ask for open hearts and open minds, as, as I always do, but also, Father, for your help, that 
as we go through this passage today that your voice, that your wisdom, that your light would shine brightly and that we would not be so hard-hearted, that we would not be so distracted, that we could learn something, that we could come away closer to you, that as we seek your face, that you would open our hearts and minds to that, that we could come away with a better understanding of who you are and how we should act and how we can draw closer to you. Amen. We are in, yes, yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So did everybody hear that? That the uh, Fru's graduation is this Tuesday. Is it online and in person? Is that? Oh wow! There's no restrictions this year. That's that's worth applauding. They get to have in-person graduation and that everybody gets to go. That's great. But yes, that, uh, yeah. Let's pray about that. Speaking of our kids, we can. The years to pray never can come from the devil. I had a wise man tell me that one time. Father, let's take a moment to, uh, to lift up our, our graduating seniors to you. They have worked hard for 12 years to get to this point, and they're heading out into the world, and they're still so young, and yet they're not. They have come so far. Regardless, they have this world that they have to deal with. They have all of the challenges of being young adults. They have all of the challenges of getting out on their own and trying to pick a profession and find love and navigate their family life and their independence. So, Father, we lift them up to you. We pray for a blessing over them that we know that you know them. We know that you see them. We know that you love them more than we could possibly imagine. But we pray for your blessing that you would keep them safe. And Father, that they would know you, that they would hear your voice, that they would know that they belong to you, that they were made and are loved by you. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Cheryl. Again, we're, uh, we're in John chapter 3. We're in uh, verses 22 through 36. And this is in your, in your bulletin. These are not in order, and I apologize for that. They're the topics that we're going to bounce through as we go uh, into this passage. And like I said, we have a, a mountain in front of us. Uh, if, you know, if you ever go to the restaurant and order like the Supreme Nachos, it's delicious, but man, it's a lot. We got that in front of us. So our topics for today, now like I say, these are not, not in order, um, We're going to talk about the transition between the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're going to talk about sister churches, how to to interact with other churches and other believers. There's a theme here, and we don't have enough time to get into it, but there's a wedding banquet theme. There's a great theme for for husbands and wives in here. Like I said, we won't have time. That's an entirely separate message, but that message is right here in this. What about the law? We're going to have that as one of our topics, is what about the law? And then one of our topics also is going to be religion and ritual. In Kenya West, those are kind of dirty words. We try really hard not to have religion, but to have faith. And we try really hard not to have meaningless ritual. 
So we're going to examine that. We're going to claw and scratch at that a little bit. What are the fundamentals of our religion and of our rituals that we, that we perform? So we're going to jump right here into our passage again. We're in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with, uh, with you is on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. Look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to, to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent sparks the words of God, speaks the word of God, Jesus. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This passage is unique to John. This story is not recorded in the other Gospels. The other Gospels go from Jesus' baptism by John to John's disciples visiting Jesus to John's death. This passage is not in there. We know this is early in Jesus' ministry because John the Baptist has not been imprisoned yet. And the synoptics, again, do not cover this period. When they talk about Jesus' ministry, they start after John is in prison. If, and I put these in your, your bulletin. We're not going to go through them. But if you go to Matthew 4.12, um, it says, you know, right here, it says, it starts at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's how it starts. Mark 1.14, it starts the exact same way. After John was in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news to God. That's how the other gospels handle it. If, uh, and we're going to go through Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, because it has the words of John the Baptist in it. This is important, so kind of bookmark this. Listen to John's words, what he has to say, what he is proclaiming, what he is preaching. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itura and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country and around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Underline that. Highlight that. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. The one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Then we go to the death of John the Baptist. And again, the scriptures are there in your, in your bulletins. So in Mark chapter 6 and, uh, and Matthew chapter 14, they both recount the story of, of John being beheaded. So there's this kind of sordid story where, um, remember, um, Herod has married his brother's wife. And this is her daughter comes and, and dances for, for Herod. And, you know, he's so enticed by this that, you know, he says, I'll give you anything that you want up to, up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes to her mom and says, hey, what do we want? And her mom says, well, we would like to have John the Baptist killed. We'd like to have his head on a platter. And that's exactly what they do. So they behead John the Baptist and bring it to, um, to Herodias on, on a platter. That's the end of, of John the Baptist. Where we are, like I say, is in between that time. So after Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and before John has been put in prison is where we come into this place. I don't have a map to put up here, but physically what they are is they're about, you know, somewhere in the area north of Jerusalem. And if, if you look there, it says the Judean countryside. So remember, Judah is the, the southern kingdom. So we're, we're south. We're not in the north, which would have been called Israel. There are also, some of the scholars will say that this actually took place in Samaria. I happen to disagree. Um, both John and Luke, they call it Samaria when they, when they enter into Samaria. This says the Judean countryside. So I think this is west of, of the Jordan. Um, there's, there's reasons to believe not that, but, but I believe so. The, like I say, the reason we don't have a map is that there's some argument over exactly where they are, because these places that they talk about, um, Anon and, and, and Samil, we just don't know uh, exactly where they are. But what we do know, that, that place, Anon, it means a, a fountain. That's what it means. It's a fountain or a spring. And it says that. It, it reinforces that saying that where they are had plenty of water. So normally John the Baptist is along the Jordan River where they can go and they can baptize in the, in the river. This particular case, they're not by the river. They are um, at this place where they have springs because it has plenty of water. 
timeline-wise, this is after Jesus has driven out the money changers for the first time. So they have come from, from up north, from Galilee. They have gone down to Jerusalem. He's driven out the money changers. Now they're kind of moving back up north, and they'll eventually go back up um, and settle in around Capernaum and start, start teaching up there. But this incident happens where they happen to both be kind of in the same area. They're within sight of each other. Um, so you can imagine, you know, you almost have two revival tents, but they can, they can see each other and see what is going on, on at each place from where they are. And that's important. And the, again, the point of all that is that if you want to be Indiana Jones, and who does not want to be Indiana Jones? Every hand should be up. That you can grab your Bible, and you can go out to this countryside, and you can go on a treasure hunt, and you can try and find these places. These are real places. They're archaeological ruins that you can explore. You can find the five or six different locations that all the scholars have narrowed in on. You can read some, some ancient texts, some Jewish texts to try and find this. But these are real places, real people, real events. So, like I said, we know roughly where. We know roughly when. We have these two groups. We have Jesus and the disciples, and we have John the Baptist and some of his disciples. They're both doing the exact same thing. They're both teaching. They're both baptizing. Notice that Jesus doesn't do the baptizing. The disciples do the baptizing. That's an important note. But they're both doing the same thing. They're, they're both preaching and, and, and teaching and baptizing, and Jesus is also healing because he does that. And that brings us to the first topic, which is baptism. It's something that all of us at some point have, have done. We've all been baptized. I, I put up here, uh, splish and splash and dunk, right? I don't know. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of conversation, isn't there, about the right way to baptize. What do you say? How do you baptize? Where do you baptize? So if we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it's kind of our authoritative verse on baptism. It says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the same thing that John the Baptist said. Repent, change your course, get on the right course, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is why we baptize everyone, not just Jews. This is why it's something that didn't just apply to the first century church. This is why we continue this tradition today. So when we ask that question, is baptism biblical? Is it endorsed by God? We're talking about our rituals and our rites. Why do we physically do what we do? The answer is yes. It's right here. If Jesus was opposed to baptism, he would not have been baptized himself, and he would not have allowed the the disciples to baptize others. But the purpose of the baptism is right there. It says, we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. So it begs the question, well, what if, I'm, what if I'm not baptized? Or I can't be baptized? What if someone confesses their faith in Christ but is never baptized? Does that mean they're excluded from heaven? The answer is no. Of our rites and our rituals, of the things I, I list them in your bulletin, this one is optional. It's weird we have optional things like this. But when, you know, go to Galatians, go to Ephesians, go to Colossians, go to First and Second Corinthians, go to Romans. So one of the major themes of that is our freedom as Christians. And it is really unnerving, the amount of freedom that we have. 
it is really unnerving how few rules we have. We're going to talk about three things, and two of them are optional. Only one of them is mandatory, and that's prayer. Everything else, you can kind of do what you want. It's scary how few things we have. If you look at other religions, there's no mandated time for you to, you know, to, to pray facing east on your specific mat with your beads or, or whatever. We just don't, we don't have that. It's not in the Bible. There's nothing that says that you have to attend a, a festival or a, you know, any sort of celebration. There's some things that it asks for us to do, but even those are not deal breakers. They don't exclude you from the kingdom of heaven. It is really unnerving how much freedom we have. And this is, it's funny, I, I had read this a long time ago and I was trying to find, I found a reference. Uh, in 2006, the University of Mississippi, they did a study on how landscape design uh, can help childhood development. A team of landscape architects conducted a simple study to observe any physical and psychological influence of having a fence around a playground and how its consequent effects would impact preschool children. By observing teachers and their students on a playground surrounded by a fence and on a comparable playground with no fence, the researchers found a striking difference in how the children interacted in the space. On playgrounds without fences, the children tended to gather around the teacher and were reluctant to stray far from her view. On playgrounds that were fenced in, however, they ran all around the playground feeling more free to explore. That's us. There's no fences. So it should drive us to the teacher. It should drive us to Jesus. We should stay close to the teacher. That's the purpose. There's, there's nothing out there. Because if you're like me, when there's a, a line, somebody draws a line, I go, really? That's the line? That, that's it right there. Well, what happens if I... Oh, oh now that's the line? Oh, well, <laughs> by all means... <laughs> If you're like me, whenever anyone puts up a rule or puts up some sort of boundary, I want to walk up and I really want to know what's on the other side. Do you mean it? What's really going to happen if I step over? See, Christianity is a playground with no fences. The idea is that we huddle around Christ and we try and stay as close to him as possible. And someone like me who was constantly looking to bend or to break the rules, the thing is that when you see somebody that's like that, that is constantly litigating the Bible, that is constantly trying to find the loopholes, it's W.C. Fields, right? One of his nurses came in and found him thumbing through the Bible and said, what are you doing? You don't believe me. He's like, looking for loopholes. (laughs) That's probably not a believer. It's probably not someone who has genuinely taken Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who genuinely loves the Lord, if they're just looking for a legal way. So instead, we sit here and we go, man, the, the fences are down. All right, so, so now what? Now what do I do? What functions do I have to do as a Christian? Pray. That's the number one. That one's not optional. It says we should pray. Pray unceasingly. It's mentioned over 300 times in the, in the New Testament. Pray. Pray, 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 pray. Pray continually. Pray about all things. How do you pray? There's no rules on that. You are absolutely free to pray however it is comfortable for you. 
You can pray on your knees. You can pray standing up. You can pray at your breakfast table. You can pray in bed. You can pray in a chair. You can pray while you're walking your dog. You can pray however it's comfortable for you. But you need to pray. It says, be baptized. That's what Paul says. Or not Paul, Peter. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The other one is celebrate communion. It's the other thing that that Jesus asked us to do. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Pray, be baptized, celebrate communion. That's really about it. We add other things onto it. We we add Christmas on. Why? Because we want to celebrate the birth of our Lord. We add Easter on. Why? Because we want to celebrate the death and the resurrection. We want to celebrate sin and death being conquered. We want to celebrate that. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, man, so I'm going to rise in three days. So every year at this time, you should definitely get together and lay out some Easter eggs and have the kids go find them and uh, fix a ham. I really like ham. You should have a ham and uh, some mashed potatoes. He'd polish up the silver, wear your nice clothes to church. Jesus doesn't say that. We do that because we want to honor God. That comes from our hearts. When we celebrate those things, we go, you know what, I really like celebrating and honoring God for these things that he has done in our lives. I like celebrating Lent. I like taking 40 days to focus on my relationship with God. I like that. I don't have to. Nowhere in there does does Jesus say to do that. He doesn't mandate that we do that. Those are things that we add on because we want to. It says, be baptized. And again, this is optional. No one, if you go uh, read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, no one in the hall of faith was baptized. Not one of them. They were all commended for their faith. The thief on the cross, Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He was not baptized. How do we baptize? It doesn't say. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. We go to the river and we dunk because that's our best guess of what John the Baptist and the disciples did. That's our best guess. But there's not a, a section in here that says, ah, baptism, all right, here are the rites. That isn't in here. It just says they were baptized. And if we look, some people were baptized at the Jordan. And, and uh, if we were to read some of the Jewish writings, they tell you to use a moving body of water, a, a living body of water when they do their, and we're going to talk about a little bit the, the mitzvahs, the washings. We uh, talked about the stone jars and that kind of thing. We're going to dive into it in a minute. But they say not to use stagnant water um, for, uh, for ritual cleansing. It's one of the reasons why we, we use the, the river or we use a lake. Or, you know, in this case, they're at a place that has uh, some pools or some fountains. But again, there's, no, there's nothing to say that. And there are some baptisms recorded in the Bible that happen in houses. So clearly they didn't flood the house you know, and there wasn't, there wasn't really bath, you know, bathtubs, that kind of thing. Um, there may have been a pool nearby. There's, I said there's over 300 pools uh, around Jerusalem that they would have used for, for ritual washing in and around the city because it was so um, necessary for, uh, for the Jewish culture. So if you were sprinkled, if you were dunked, if you were splashed, all of those things are valid forms of, of baptism. The question is, what is in your heart? That's what, that's what makes it or breaks it. See, that's your public proclamation of your belief in Christ. When you are baptized, you're not, you've already said it to Jesus. You're saying to the rest of us that you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you believe on him, that you're repenting of your sins. That's your baptismal statement that you're making when you, when you have that. And the point, I say, is that public declaration. So what about communion? 
What's our other one? We have three things. Pray, baptism, communion. So if we go to your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26, that's what I usually read when we, we take communion. Um, the other one is Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to read from Luke because the, the end part in verse 20 is important for later on in our, in our verse. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. And it says, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood and is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we take communion. But again, it's optional. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Go to the Old Testament. Not a single one of those guys took communion. It's not going to bar you from heaven if you've never taken communion. It's just not one of the, not one of the things. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Well, Phil, you just said these are the three things we're supposed to do. And now you're saying two of them are optional. It's unnerving. It's unnerving when we peer out over the edge of our Bibles and see that there are no fences. It's hard for us because we like when we have structure. We like when we have rules. We like when we have organization. And that's what we do. That's why we have this building. That's why we have our set times. That's why we have a set format where we come in and we start worship first. And then we have, you know, somebody stand in front of you and and talk for an hour. We set up those structures. But the beautiful part is that right now all over the world, there's this amazing variation of worship and of teaching of the scripture that is going on today. Church here looks this way, but in Africa and in South Africa and Antarctica and in Russia and all the places all over the world, there's this beautiful bouquet of worship that is being sent up today. There is this wonderful variety of humans that are just doing the best that we possibly can to learn the scriptures, to learn about God, and to lift up some worship and to go out to the week a little bit closer. That's all we're doing. And the heart of that, it goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, specifically verse 13. When it's all stripped away, when everything goes away, this is where we go. It says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, when then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. There it is. When you strip everything else away, those are the three things. Faith in Christ, hope in Christ, love God, love everyone else. My faith, my hope, and my love lead me to those actions. They lead me to want a closer relationship. That's why I pray. They lead me to want to tell everyone 
about Christ and the good work that he has begun in me. That's why I get baptized. How do I celebrate the price that Christ paid for me, that I could be forgiven and redeemed? Well, I I take communion. How do I build my relationship with Christ? I, I talk with him. I call him up. Hit the digits. And there really isn't a better way to draw closer to Christ than to pray. Now, I know it seems like we've gotten way off track. I know that. But I promise that what we have actually done is we have actually just crashed right into verse 25. See, an argument develops between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Remember last week when we were at the the wedding at Cana? Jesus had the servants fill the stone jars, the ones used for ceremonial washing, and that water is the water he turns into wine. The tradition was Jews would wash their hands, wash their face, and wash their feet out of these stone jars before every single meal. There was a special way you would do it. So you would take either a cup or a ladle and you would pour the water over one hand and then you pour the water over the other hand. And you would say a prayer. And this prayer is, says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. Three, four times a day, every time they would eat, they would do that. Ceremonial water, and you would say that prayer. This Jew, it says a certain Jew, it doesn't tell us his name, he's trying to figure it out. He's going, man, is this, this baptism thing is kind of new. Where did this come from? Is this a form of mikvah? Is this a ceremonial washing like I've been doing before? Is that what this is? So let me ask you a question. Why do you wash your hands? It's an obvious answer. It's because they're dirty. That's why you wash your hands. Why do you brush your teeth? Because they are dirty. You recognize that you are dirty and that you need to be clean. Why do we need to be clean? Because clean is healthy. Dirty leads to sickness. And I like the meme that's been going around. It says, you know, now that everyone knows how to wash their hands and not touch their face, we can start working on using your turn signals. <laughs> right? But the thing is, dirty invites viruses and bacteria and fungus. Dirty invites plaque and cavities and infection. We recognize and acknowledge that we are dirty and that we need to be clean. So what is the purpose of the law? It helps us recognize that we are dirty, that we are full of sin, that we are separated from God. In fact, it's so unhealthy that it leads to death. And it helps us recognize that we need to be clean. But go back to that, that little prayer. It says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who what? Who has sanctified us. Who makes us clean? God does. Now imagine, three times a day, You're going, I have sinned. God makes me clean. Three times a day you do that. Psalm 51, if you don't have this bookmarked, bookmark it. It covers this whole topic right here. This is a microcosm of everything that we are talking about. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, and you who are my God are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise." It's an acknowledgement of sin and asking God to make us clean to, for salvation. If we go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, you see this mirrored in the Lord's Prayer. It says right in the middle, it says, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, and also forgive our debtors. We also forgive our debtors. That's what it says right there. If you are praying the, day, the Lord's Prayer daily, you're doing the exact same thing as that mikvah. You're saying, I have sinned. I have sinned against you, God. Please forgive me. Please help me to have a loving and forgiving heart. That's the question that this guy asks. He says, hey, so is this a form of, of ritual cleansing? Is that what I'm doing? Is I'm ritual cleansing? And the answer is, sort of. But it's in a new covenant. And we're going to get to that in a, in a, in a moment. But notice the answer. This guy opens the floodgates. I don't think he means to, but there's a reason why there's an argument that comes up, and it's because he's talking to people. If he was talking to you know, angels or someone better, this argument would not have happened. But instead, he's talking to real human beings. And so he says, all right, uh, so what are we doing here? And what do they answer? You see those guys over there? They're baptizing too, John. You see what they're doing? People are leaving here and going over there. That's what they say. Uh, that's, that's not what I asked. I asked why we were getting baptized. You think there's not humor in the Bible? This, this is the humor. See, te- Jesus is teaching, the disciples are baptizing, and John is teaching, and they are baptizing. They say, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. It's like the, you ever see the video for the, the song Beat It with Michael Jackson? The two guys, you know, this is what they want. Is they want Jesus and John the Baptist to tie their wrists together and get out their switchblades. And, you know, who's going to win, the kings or the snakes? Which gang gets to rule the west side of the Jordan? Because truth is, John's the OG. He's the original. He's the gangster. He's the one who started preaching this stuff first. This Jesus guy, he's a newcomer. What's he doing? See, it is tempting 
when we see other churches, when we see other denominations, when we see other Christians who are ministering and serving, to see them as competitors, to feel threatened or to feel envy or jealousy, especially when they are more popular or they seem to be more successful. I'm not immune. I get petty and jealous and bitter and envious. I react in fear and anger. Quite frankly, I'm very thankful for the church. I'm thankful for Vern and Ron and John and Doug and Nathan. They're, brave. they're actually prayful. And they're thoughtful and they're loving and they're encouraging when I am not, when I am petty. But listen to John the Baptist, his reaction. He gives the correct one. He says, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He says, I can only receive what is given from heaven. Our ministry, our evangelism, our spiritual gifts, and our resources, they're not ours. We do not create them. We do not supply them. We are responsible for being good workers and good stewards of what we have been given. This takes us to that that parable, the parable of the coins, the parable of the, the minas. See, some of us have received one, some of us have received five, some ten. And the question isn't what we have been given. The question is, what did we do with what we have been given? The good steward will take what we have been given and do our best to multiply it. It doesn't matter what the other stewards have. Notice in, in any of those parables, whether it's the prodigal son or the coins or the, uh, the minas, none of those does Jesus compare the servants. We do that when we read it. We compare. Jesus doesn't do that. We imply that because one had five and the other one had ten, that it's a competition. Well, 20 is more than 10. 10 is more than 5. Clearly, the steward I want to be is the one with 10. The one with 5 and the one with 1 are clearly the first losers. Jesus doesn't say that. That is nowhere in the Scripture. That's nowhere in the Bible. He says, whoever has a little, more will be given. Not only the top 10%. There isn't a, a seating chart For heaven, where if you average 10,000 church attendees for five years or more, you get to sit at the table closest to the stage, and you get a set of backstage passes. God gives to each of us according to our needs, our gifts, and our stewardship. Then he tells us to get off our butts and get running. Notice that John didn't quit. Isn't that weird? As soon as Jesus came on the scene, why didn't he retire? Why don't you go do something else? Oh, job's done. Messiah's here. Way paved. No. He keeps on working. Because that isn't what God says to do. God says to run your race until the end. We don't give up because someone passes us. See, there are winners and losers, but the unsaved are the losers. If they're running with us, They're a winner. (laughs) It means we're all going to the same place. Our job is to grab as many people as possible and to push or pull or drag them across the finish line. 
This is a team sport. We are saved as individuals, and we are each responsible for our faith. I don't get to stand in front of the judgment seat for you or for anyone except for myself. But after that, it's game on. It's not cheating, by the way. We use the term advantage management. But here's the thing. If, if someone goes to Bethlehem on Saturday and then comes here on Sunday, then goes to Cowboy Church on Sunday night, maybe comes to our Tuesday night Bible study, then maybe goes to Movement over on Wednesdays, maybe their kids do a Awana over at Mountain View and then Youth Group over at Vertigo. Maybe they do Scouts over at the Methodist Church. You know what we call that? We call that the full court press. Somewhere in there, if they hear the good news of Jesus, repent and are baptized, hallelujah. Let's high five each other, inbound the ball, and do it again. That's a win. See, our opponent is not other churches or other Christians. Our opponent is not even the unsaved. Our opponent is Satan. It says so right here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Next thing John says is, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah, thank goodness. You are not the Messiah either. The church does not belong to you or to me or to any of us. It belongs to Christ. We have a dual role in one way, We are the church. We are the body. We are the bride. And in that way, our job is to persevere, to keep the lamp lit, to make sure the wick is trimmed and that we have plenty of oil so that we are ready for when the groom returns. In the other way, we're the best man or the best woman, the attendant at the wedding. We help facilitate the wedding. We make sure that the ceremony goes off without a hitch. However, the bride is not ours. We rejoice at the groom and his bride. This illustration is actually, John deals a pretty serious insult to his guys. If you go to to Judges uh, chapter 14, there's a a part in there where Samson, you guys remember that Samson had a wife before Delilah? Anybody remember that? Samson gets married to this Philistine woman and never tells us her name. But there's this whole thing where Samson gives a riddle and, you know, if anybody can answer it, they get 30 pieces of clothing and then 30 pieces of linen. And then his wife asks him for the answer. It's seven days. And so he finally breaks down and he tells her. And then she goes and tells the guys. And then they come and they tell the riddle. And instead of giving them the prize, he kills them all. (laughs) But after that, after this this battle where he he slaughters these guys, his father-in-law gives his new wife to one of the attendants at the wedding a Philistine, another man. So when Samson comes back to retrieve his bride, she's married to another man. And that's what John the Baptist is is calling his followers right there. He's saying, yeah, you're acting like these Philistines. You're trying to take the bride from Christ. All righty then. Well, I'll take that insult. Thank you very much. But he ends it with a couple of reminders. He's told everyone that he is not the Messiah and that he has never claimed to be the Messiah. And now that the Messiah has come, he must become less and Jesus must become more. But this is a breaking moment. I told you we were going to get to this. It's a breaking moment. See, John the Baptist is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. He is the last of the prophets. 
In the last days, if you go over to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, there will be two prophets. They, they go, they, um, it says that the two witnesses, but they will be at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. But otherwise, he's the last. He's the last prophet. And after that, we go into the new covenant. And this moves us from the old covenant to the new covenant. We pass out of the age of the law and the age of the prophets and into the age of the Holy Spirit. If you go to John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26, Jesus says exactly this. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. If you wanted to, and I put them in your, your bulletins, but there are seven covenants, up in, in, including the new covenant. So if you go to Genesis, you, know, you have a covenant with Adam and Eve, and part of that's a general covenant, and part of that is the, the prophecy where um, you know, he says to, to Satan that um, you know, uh, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. If you go to, to Genesis chapter 9, that's the Noah covenant, that um, uh, I will never again will uh, all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Uh, Abraham covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And says, you know, you will be uh, the father to many nations. And then he later on adds to that and says that your descendants will, will outnumber the stars. It will be more than the grains of sand. Deuteronomy chapter 11, that's the, the Mosaic covenant, Moses. And this is a conditional covenant. It says, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today. That's enhanced if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 for the, the fifth covenant. Some people call it the Philistine or the Palestine covenant. But it's the same thing. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. If you deny God, you'll be removed from the promised land. If you, when you return to God, you'll be returned home. It's a conditional covenant. Then you go to, to uh, number six, the, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's Davidic covenant. It says that the Messiah will come from the Davidic line. Then we get to the new covenant. It's number seven in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Go back to to Luke chapter 22, verse 20. What does Jesus say? He says, This cup is the new covenant which is sealed in my blood. And then this is confirmed by John. John is signaling, he's confirming the end of the age. It's the end of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus confirms this. Remember when uh, it's the Passion Week and they're walking around, he says, look around you. Not a single one of these stones is going to be left standing. All of this is going to end. And it happens. In 70 AD, the city is destroyed. And we wait for the new Jerusalem. It's the end of the Levite system. 
No more do we need the priest. Remember when the, the, the curtain is torn from top to bottom, the Holy of Holies is emptied and we receive the Holy Spirit. We don't need the priests to go and, and, and do that for us. It's the end of an age. It's the start of the new covenant. So, I know we've plowed through a ton. But we have done some things. We have examined, right? We have looked at this new religion that John is preaching that he is asking us to join. We have looked at the rituals of this new religion, what is required and what they mean, why we pray, why we are baptized, why we celebrate communion. We have looked at our place in the kingdom as stewards of the, of the meanness, of the coins, of the gift that God has given us and our duty to multiply them. We have looked at how we should react to our fellow believers, to our brothers and sisters when we feel threatened or envious or jealous of their position or their, their gifts or their ministry. We have looked at our place both as part of the church, as part of the bride of Christ, and as attendants, best men and women at the wedding, and how we should celebrate the wedding of Christ in the church rather than trying to steal the bride for ourselves. We have looked at the end of an age, the end of the old systems and ways, and how Jesus did bring in the new covenant. So our conclusion is how John concludes. He says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And I pray that you believe in the Son and that you have eternal life. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for John and for John the Baptist and for the disciples and for ask, answering questions that I didn't even know to ask. Father, we have our week coming up in front of us. and Father, we have sickness and, and, and loss and all of the things that tear us down. We just are asking for you to be close. We're seeking your comfort. We are seeking your healing. We are seeking your blessing. We think about our, our kids, the end of the school year, graduations and moving on to new schools. Father, we ask that you keep them safe. We also ask that if they are suffering, that we would know. Please help us to see them and to hear them, to see that they are not doing well if, if that's the case. And Father, please draw near to them. Speak loudly to them, shine brightly to them. Father, give us words and actions that speak life, especially to our children, but also to those around us. Please help us to overcome our fears and our jealousy and our anger. Please help us to love one another, to love our fellow humans. 
Father, we lift this week up to you. We seek your blessing. We seek your provision. And we seek to draw closer to you. We ask all of that in the new covenant that is sealed in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go fellowship. I saw Wendy bringing in something delicious. Let's go find out what it is.